You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to the final episode of our ongoing Living for the Bond series, revisiting past Bond films in the lead-up to the U.S. release of this final Daniel Craig Bond movie. And we are now here, finally. Please be warned that if you have not yet seen this movie, I will be discussing spoilers and giving away much of the plot, including the ending. No Time to Die, which just came out in 2021. It was directed by Kari Joji Fukunaga. It stars Daniel Craig, Leia Sadu, Rami Malek, Lashana Lynch, Ray Fiennes, Ben Wishaw, Naomi Harris, Anna de Armas, Jeffrey Wright, Rory Kinnear, Christoph Waltz, and Billy Magnuson. My first thoughts after walking out of my first viewing of this film were basically, they stuck the landing on this. I was relieved. <laughs> I was so relieved that they pulled off what seemed like the challenging task of ending this run of Daniel Craig Bond films on a satisfying note. And from what I hear, a lot of fans of this franchise don't necessarily agree with me, but we'll get to that later. At the very least, this is a dramatic improvement from the previous film, which, in my opinion, is one of the weakest Bond entries, and that would be Spectre, though I really like all of the other Craig Bond films. Having now watched No Time to Die twice, I believe they really did pull it off, though not without some bumps, because there is a lot of story in this deal, and characters, and action, and twists and turns. I'm still kind of surprised how well it all gels together, especially when there are some disparate tones in different sequences. I mean, there is now that much-praised sequence taking place in Cuba, featuring Bond and Paloma, delightfully played by Anna de Armas, taking on several agents from Spectre at a multi-level banquet hall. This sequence is just pure fun and is a masterclass of editing and stunt work. Amazingly, that fun, warm-weather action sequence is in the same movie, which starts out with a creepy opening flashback, all set in cold, snowy Norway at a remote house near a frozen-over lake, setting up our villain. This is a scene which honestly feels like it's from some moody A24 horror movie. The fact that neither scene feels jarring from the rest of this film is just mind-blowing. It would clearly take a special type of talent behind the camera to pull that off. And that talent would be the director, of course. The director, Kari Joji Fukunaga. And he earns his salary just from these two sequences plus the ending alone. On paper, this film should not work. It's trying to accomplish so many different things. Get us caught up on Bond in retirement. Provide the connective tissue between his love Madeline, played by Leia Sadu, and Spectre. And this new villain we are presented with during that opening sequence. Bring Bond back into the action. Introduce us to a new 007, played very well by Lashana Lynch, who took his spot while he was retired. Provide Craig with an emotional send-off possibly leave things in place for the series to continue beyond him, and it still has to check off all of the boxes that Bond fans have come to expect, like myself, of course. Eye candy, gadgets, quips, you name it. 
That it delivers on all fronts is impressive, though it does result in one minor casualty, and that would be the lack of a completely satisfying villain. Recent Oscar winner Rami Malek plays Safin, and his overall plan involves capturing a scientist and a device developed in secret by MI6, known as the Heracles Project, which he has now reprogrammed as a biological weapon to take down individuals targeted by their DNA. Now, Malik is actually quite effective as he gives this character a suitably creepy vibe with a dead-eyed stare and soft-spoken voice. The problem is that we just don't see that much of him, which takes away some weight and context for the threat that he presents. People want oblivion, and a few of us are born to build it for them. So here I am, their invisible god, sneaking under their skin. You know that history isn't kind to those who play God. And you don't? We both eradicate people to make the world a better place. I just want to be a little... tidier. Now, gratefully, everyone else involved gives Safin's threat the weight and forward momentum that it needs. Like I said, for a near three-hour movie, this thing really moves. And much of the credit needs to go to editor Tom Cross, who is not only doing a James Bond film for the first time, he's only been working on features for about 10 years. But what he has done is impressive, as he has been Damien Chazelle's go-to guy. Damien Chazelle directed La La Land and Whiplash. So yeah, this is the guy responsible for Whiplash, which is probably among the most masterfully edited films of recent years, which explains how not only do we see several really well-crafted extended action sequences in No Time to Die, but we also get plenty of engaging character moments, and the whole thing feels organic. And almost every one of the extended cast has a moment to shine, including Anna de Armas, who steals the 15 minutes that she's in so much that there's apparently now demand for a spinoff of her character Paloma. Ray Fiennes also finally brings some real weight to the role of M, effectively playing him as someone who's very troubled by a situation that he helped unknowingly create. And Lashana Lynch also brings the right amount of edge and action chops to her role as Nomi, the new 007. Most importantly, Daniel Craig, he just kills it, as he really does go out on top, giving his most nuanced and emotional performance as this character while also retaining the physicality that has really elevated this particular version of 007. And yes, he's allowed to be funny and witty, which is not to say he hasn't been so in previous films, but we actually see him deliver some real Bondian quips some of which are just pure dad jokes, but they generally land. It contains a limited radius, electromagnetic pulse. It'll short any circuit in a hardwired network if you get close enough. Mm-hmm. And how strong is it? It's fairly strong. Fairly strong? What's that mean? You haven't had the chance to test it properly, just be careful. And smart blood will track you and your vitals. Bond, you don't mind a shot or two whilst at work, shall we? Well, I haven't had a drink for three or four ow- hours. Wow. Doesn't sound like you. <clears throat> he also really sells the emotions of the conclusion of this movie. And now that ending. Whew. Um, I love it. And I not only love that Eon Productions had the balls to go this route with the character, but I love even more how Carrie Jojo Fukunaga pulled it off with such artistry I mean, wow. Talking about threading a very difficult needle. He found a way to literally, yes, 
can't believe I'm – it sounds funny saying it. He found a way to literally kill off James Bond in a way which was poetic, life-affirming – yes, I did say that <laughs> – and extremely cinematic. Special mention must go to Linus Sandgren, who was the cinematographer, because this might be among the most beautiful death scenes I have ever seen. The image of Bond standing proudly on that platform, looking upward at the sun, well, and those other things, and with those explosions in the sky, which then come raining down on him and the whole island around him, this is how a hero goes out. But yes, beyond how beautiful it looks, it completely tracks with the journey we have seen this particular version of James Bond take over his five movies. This is someone who knew from the get-go in Casino Royale, his first movie, that, quote, double O's have a short life expectancy as he discusses in that very first meeting with M, played by Judy Dench. And he's comfortable with that. That's part of the risk of his job protecting, quote, queen and country. But even more so, he learns again and again that not only will sacrifices be required from a personal standpoint, but more importantly, he might not always succeed. At the end of Casino Royale, he couldn't save Vesper. And at the end of Skyfall, he couldn't save M. But now, the stakes are even higher. Millions of people are at risk, and not only is the life of his beloved Madeline at risk, but also their daughter. So this time, he is able to save them. Which actually makes this a more triumphant ending for this character than I think a lot of fans are willing to acknowledge. And within the context of the movie up until this point, it feels like a very fitting ending. Bond has been betrayed so many times that he has pretty much been programmed to react coldly in response to the cruel ruse perpetrated on him by Blofeld, which helps set this story in motion. He's always going to be looking over his shoulder, even staying with Madeline, so when a literal, quote, no-win scenario is presented to him during the climax, he knows what he has to do, and he does it. He does the most humane thing possible by sacrificing himself to not only save his love and his daughter, but also to ensure that the Heracles Project and all remnants of it are fully destroyed before any other country whose military is headed there is able to get their hands on it. As this is a final chapter for his particular story, the stakes have been raised, and he has risen to the occasion. Now I get it, Bond fans, I really do. I can see why so many are genuinely angered by the ending of this story, as we have never seen Bond die on screen before. And if I'm being honest, I myself probably would have been very angered by this ending if I was about you know 15 to 20 years younger, and or if Daniel Craig had been the signature Bond for me. But here's the thing. Myself being a longtime Bond fan who grew up with Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton, was well aware of the Connery Bonds, and became an adult during both the Brosnan and Craig years, me personally, I'm at the point where I'm at least comfortable with the fact that this character's evolved over time, and that after witnessing him be recast now three times myself, he'll be recast again. And as the message at the very end of the end credits tells us, James Bond will return. Because he will as he always has. Now, whether Bond can be used as a code name or they just end up finding some distant cousin named Bond or if they just flat out reboot and start everything from scratch, I have faith that Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, the folks running Eon, that they will figure out a way to successfully navigate this, as they have done many times before. And that brings me to the categories. The first category, as this is now the last installment of the Living for the Bond series, is the best Bond bit. This series has so many elements which carry over from installment to installment, opening credit sequence, Bond girls, henchmen, villains lair, gadgets, cold open, final fight. And this award goes to the one thing that stands out the most for this particular entry in the Bond franchise. And as I mentioned, that opening scene set in Norway, 
It's damn impressive, and it has to be one of the best we have seen from this franchise, even though it doesn't really feel like it's setting up a Bond movie. We witness a slowly waddling assassin clad in all white, wearing an unsettling kabuki mask, attempt to gun down a family as a young girl tries to escape him. This is our introduction to the main villain, Safin, and this character basically comes off as a menacing penguin carrying a machine gun. The whole sequence is genuinely unsettling to watch, and it happens to be a flashback for Leia Sadu's Madeline, she's the little girl, who we then cut to present-day swimming, currently living a blissful life with our hero, James Bond. Now, there's actually even more to follow after this before we even get to the opening credits. In a dazzling extended sequence set amidst the multi-level bright splendor of Matera, Italy, which is at different points romantic, sad, and exciting. The sequence has it all. Talk about a cold open which accomplishes so much in so many different ways. That brings me to the next category, which is the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film. Hans Zimmer steps up to the plate, delivering what might be the best Bond score since John Barry left the franchise in the 1980s. That's no faint praise. He dishes out the original theme just enough. He also does an effective job of incorporating Billie Eilish's lovely title track into several of the more emotional moments, and he even brings in the melody from a very memorable Bond ballad from the 1960s. And beyond that, the ending, of course. Now, without the stirring, escalating strings of Zimmer's score, I don't know if that moment for Bond lands nearly as well. So this is a close call, this whole category. But for me, the needle drop, which really nails the power of the conclusion of this film, is that ballad that I just mentioned. And the ballad is from 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service. The song is called We Have All the Time in the World. And it was performed by the late, great Louis Armstrong. And for context, we hear this song in the middle of that movie as we see Bond, who was then played by George Lazenby, falling in love with Tracy, played by Diana Rigg. We then hear that melody in John Barry's score throughout the remainder of that movie, which itself had a very tragic ending. We have all the time in the world also happens to be Bond's last line in that movie. So now here, we finally hear the song kick in, just as we see a bookended image of a car driving into a tunnel with the light coming through the other side. This is almost duplicating a similar shot from near the beginning of the movie, and it is a beautiful way to close this film. Even more so that we start to hear the opening guitar strings of this ballad, followed by Sachimo, that was Armstrong's nickname, his raspy voice start to sing the chorus. And yes, it is a callback to a previous Bond film, but it's more than just fan service. It's a heartfelt tribute to the spirit of this character and his overall mindset. I have said it before, and I'll say it again. Music is essential to film, and the use of this song demonstrates that as well as any recent film that I can recall. Time in the world 
time enough for life to unfold all the precious things love has in store we have all the love in the world if that's all we have you will find we need nothing more and that brings me to the next category which would be wasted talent this is the most underutilized talent involved with this film now i've only seen lashana lynch in two films so far and I'm very impressed. Her performance as Maria Rambeau was by far the best thing about Captain Marvel, which came out a few years ago, and also starred Brie Larson. And she's also very good in this. She has a nice back-and-forth chemistry with Craig as his rival MI6 agent, and it's nice to see them work together as the film progresses. But I'm not going to lie, I expected more of her in this movie and would have liked to have seen more of that relationship develop. Unfortunately, it does feel at times as though some of her scenes were left on the cutting room floor which I suspect might have been a knee-jerk response to the ridiculous online tantrum thrown by closed-minded YouTube trolls last year who were just clutching their pearls in response to her character's appearance in the first trailer for No Time to Die. And why? Because her character dared to threaten James Bond to stay out of her way. Because we've never heard of rivals in any field doing that, right? Oh, right. And, oh my God, she's a black woman playing a double O. No! Now, having seen this movie twice, these tantrums were all over a supporting character who is basically an ally of our hero for the second half of the movie and even makes a very deferential gesture towards him late in the film in a really nice moment. If there was a feminist or, quote, woke message in No Time to Die, it was seriously lost on me. But that's not going to stop these guys, and they continue to push that narrative online about how this Bond is, quote, too woke. I swear, if the movie Aliens came out today, I can just imagine the headlines from these losers. Canadian SJW James Cameron has destroyed the Alien franchise with a sequel that demeans the military, relegates men to secondary characters, and elevates a character who's clearly an illegal alien from Latin America. Lashana Lynch as an actress deserves much better than to have to suffer the blowback from this. As does Brie Larson, Kelly Marie Tran, and whomever else these losers get in their sights. And that brings me to the next category, which would be the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. Now, one thing I'm not going to spoil from this movie is that a relatively prominent character suffers a tragic fate about halfway through. I'm not going to say who it is, but it's at the hand of an American operative who has also betrayed Bond named Logan Ash, played with perfect frat boy, smiley face smarm by Billy Magnuson. Well, later in the movie, Bond is chased into an extremely dense, foggy forest up in Norway by a small army of Safin's henchmen driving Range Rovers and motorcycles. Bond holes up in the forest after just having driven one of those Range Rovers topside. He takes the cable from the back of it and basically sets up some wire traps among the trees to take out the rest of the cars coming at him, while he also shoots at them with a machine gun. This is just an expertly executed action sequence, among several others in this film. The sound design really sells the danger, too, as we hear these vehicles coming towards Bond in the distance, almost as if they're fast-moving creatures just hurtling towards him, but he can't quite tell where they're coming from or even what they are. It's so effectively done, it kind of even reminded me of some of the more tense scenes from Jurassic Park where you hear dinosaurs coming in the distance. 
Well, guess who's driving one of those Range Rovers? And just guess what Bond does when he finds this guy lying on the ground, taunting him, while the truck he was just driving is now leaning a few feet above him, only held up by some slowly cracking branches from a tree. I mean, we just hate this Logan guy, played by Billy Magnuson, for what he's done and for who he's killed. And let's just say that what happens next is somewhat similar to my trailer moment from my review of For Your Eyes Only, and we'll just leave it at that. And that brings me to the final category, and that would be the MVP. The MVP is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. First of all, I would like to personally thank Daniel Craig for bringing new dimension to my favorite fictional character. I mean, that's why we're doing this series. Uh, And a lot of people here worked on five pictures with me. And I know there's a lot of things said about what I think about these films and all of those, whatever, but I've loved every single second of these movies, and especially this one, because I've got up every morning and I've had the chance to work um, with you guys. And that has been one of the greatest honors of my life. So... As far as I'm concerned, his track record for Bond films is four for five, and I have really enjoyed this run of Bond films starring him. Now, is he the best Bond? It's probably too soon to tell, and it's also just so hard for me to choose among them. But at the very least, his Bond was the most fully developed. So kudos to Daniel Craig. Now, that said, Carrie Joji Fukunaga has to be the MVP. He has crafted a highly entertaining film that, as David Sims from The Atlantic said in his review, quote, blends absurdity and pathos well. I really can't say it better than that. I mean, this story has serious moments for this character, but it also includes nanobots, bionic eyes, and my personal favorite, Gatling guns coming out of the headlights of the Aston Martin DB5, which makes a memorable appearance during the second half of that cold open set in Matera. And it all just blends together. I have only seen one other film directed by this guy. Beasts of No Nation from about six years ago, which is a brilliant film, and now I want to see more. I don't even care about the genre. And just think about it. He was the first American to direct a Bond film, and he killed Bond no less. Wow, I could just imagine the online hate that this guy is going to endure just for doing this. But regardless, Carrie, bravo, and stay strong. My rating for No Time to Die would be four and a half stars out of five. Now, let me put a very strong qualifier on that rating. I love Bond films. I've seen a lot of these films multiple times. I know this franchise. It really does benefit this movie. In fact, I would say it's essential to enjoy this movie that you have seen the previous four Daniel Craig Bond films. If you haven't, that could affect your enjoyment of it. So given that, that's my rating for this film. Now, it's too early for me to rank this among the rest of the films in the Bond franchise though I'm already comfortable saying that No Time to Die is not as good as Skyfall, which, to be fair, few films are. That film, Skyfall, remains the high-water mark for Bond films for me. Still, this is top-flight entertainment, which deserves to be seen on the biggest screen available. And right now, it's only playing in theaters. And that ends another conclusive review. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Cinema.